This morning's reading comes from Mark 14, uh, verses 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they will all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly or and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under, away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they had laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that as we have the next few minutes to reflect upon it. That you, give, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, and that we might see Jesus high and lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our journey in Mark. We've been in Mark since January, and we'll complete this journey next week in Mark. 
And what we've been discovering in Mark is that Jesus has been very intentional in going to Jerusalem for the last six chapters after he left the mountain uh, after his transfiguration. He has been on a journey to Jerusalem. And we followed him into Jerusalem over the last few weeks. And this week on Passion Sunday, we are with Jesus in his agony in the garden. Jesus' decision a few chapters earlier in Mark to get onto a young cult led him directly to what we read about this morning, his betrayal, his arrest, and eventually his death. Jesus' triumphal entry on the cult has led him to this point in Mark's gospel. And so we want to look at two things together this morning. We want to look at Jesus' faithfulness and our faithlessness. Jesus' faithfulness and our faithfulness and how our faithlessness might be transformed into faithfulness. Well, friends, in our context, Jesus has just shared the annual Passover meal with his disciples. They've enjoyed together this celebration, and Jesus has retold this story to them in the most peculiar way. He gives a spin and a twist to the meal that they were not expecting. He told them that the bread and the wine that they just ate were pointing to something far greater than they realized. It was a symbol of his body and blood. And he's just instituted for them a new meal, a new covenant sign, a new covenant symbol for the people of God, teaching them that he is now the lamb. He's the Passover lamb who's come into the world to die for the sins of his people. As we've been seeing in Mark's gospel, they were expecting him to be a king like the other kings that the nations have. They were putting their hope and their faith in him to renew and to restore Israel, to free Israel from political domination. They believed that he was the Christ, but they struggled to have a, a definition of the Christ that matched Jesus' own definition. And for the last six chapters in Mark, Jesus has been telling them, guys, you don't get it. You don't know the type of king that I am. You don't know that I'm going to establish my reign by suffering and dying. I keep telling you this, but you refuse to listen. And now after this Passover meal of telling his disciples once again that he is the Passover lamb who will go to die for them, Jesus realizes that all that he's been telling them in Mark about how the Son of Man came to suffer and die, that it's coming to a climax. And so he goes with them into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a familiar place for them. In fact, in John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, it says that they have gone there many times before as this band of followers for prayer and for solitude. You see, Jerusalem, like many cities, didn't have a lot of space, a lot of open land, a lot of parks. And so Jerusalem, like many cities being crowded, would have wealthy individuals buy a plot of land outside the city so that they could go for some refreshment. 
And this is a plot of land that uh, a wealthy landowner has told the disciples of Jesus that they can use. They've been there many times to this garden. And the Garden of Gethsemane means oil press. And the meaning of Gethsemane clues us in to what is happening to Jesus. Just as olives are put on the pressed and their oil is squeezed out, so also Jesus is about to be put on the press and be squeezed out. And the garden is preparation for that squeezing. The garden is preparation for his suffering and for his agony. So as Jesus enters into this garden, he leaves eight of his disciples at the entrance, and then he goes in a little bit further with Peter and James and John. And then he leaves those three behind to go alone to be with his father. This garden has become a new temple, and Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies in this garden to be alone with his father, to prepare himself to become the sacrifice for his people. And as he moves away from his disciples, he tells them that he is distressed, that he is troubled, that his soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And the word translated for distressed conveys an amazement, a shock, a horror. Jesus is shocked by his sorrow. He's overcome by his trouble. He's amazed at his distress, just like an olive. He's being pressed. He's being squeezed out. He's forced to the ground. He's being crushed. And what is it that's causing this squeezing? What is it that's causing this crushing, this shock to his soul? Well, he tells us in his prayer. He cries out to God and he says, remove this cup. Friends, Jesus has always been in relationship to God. He's always had a face-to-face relationship with God, always being perfectly intimate with his Father, always feeling the love and the embrace of his Father. His practice throughout the Gospels is to get away and go and be alone with his Father, to be encouraged, to be refreshed, to be renewed. Luke's gospel tells us that the pattern of his time during the last week of his life was to teach in the temple during the day and then to retire to a quiet place in the evening to be alone with his father. And it may be that Jesus has been to this very garden every night of the last week of his life to be strengthened, be encouraged, to be renewed in relationship with his Father. And as he goes into the garden on this last night of his life, he expects heaven to open up, heaven to come down once again to him, but instead he finds hell there. He went to the garden to be comforted, but instead is tested by his Father. He's squeezed by his Father. He's shocked at what his father holds in front of him, the cup. He knows what's in this cup. He knows all the Old Testament scriptures that speak of this cup. 
He himself has talked about this cup on occasion. He's agreed to drink this cup from all eternity. Friends, the mystery of God's love for us is that in eternity past, and who can comprehend eternity past? None of us. But God's word tells us that in eternity past, God the Father set his love, set his affection upon a people, knowing that they would be a people who would turn and rebel against him, knowing that they would be a people in need of rescue. And in eternity past, he planned salvation for his people. But salvation presents actually a huge dilemma for God. You see, God must save his people in a way that he remains God. He must remain righteous and just in how he saves his people. He cannot overlook his people's sin. He cannot overlook their rebellion. It must be dealt with if he's going to be restored to his people or he cannot be God. Salvation, then, is a great dilemma for God. How can God be God and be righteous and be just and rescue a people that have rebelled against him? How can he save a people without forfeiting his justice and forfeiting his righteousness? And the great mystery of the gospel is that in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son entered into a covenant, entered into an agreement together of how this dilemma would be solved. And in eternity past, God the Son says, as it were, Father, you have set your heart, you have set your love upon a people, upon a world that you're going to create that's going to rebel against you. And Father, I will go. I will go and rescue those people. I will go and rescue this world that you so dearly love. And the father replies, as it were, but my son, they're bound for my judgment. They'll draw upon themselves the full weight of my wrath and justice and anger because of their rebellion, because I'm a just God. And God the son replies, as it were, father, let it fall on me. Let it fall on me. I'll drink the cup. I'll drink the cup of your wrath unmixed with mercy. I'll drink it to the bitter end. And the father replies, as it were, my son, what a price. What a cost. What a sacrifice. And the son says, let it be so, father. Let it be. I will do it. I will do it. Friends, this is why the Father sent the Son. This is why the Son came into the world to save the world that God loves so much. And now in the garden, the Father holds in front of the Son the cup, and it squeezes him. It crushes him. It makes him sweat blood. It forces him to the ground. And this is why the son in the garden is in so much agony. His responsibility as God's servant is coming to a climax. And so he prays out, Father, is there any other way? Must it happen as we planned? 
must I drink this cup? That's the question that he wants answered in his prayer. And friends, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, the Father has spoken to him many times before. Heaven has been opened up to him, and the Father has said to him, You are my son. I love you. I'm well pleased in you. And if ever there was a time that Jesus needed the Father to speak to him, it is now. But the heavens are shut up. The Father is silent. A number of years ago, there was a movie made about the story of Ray Charles, one of America's greatest performers. As you know, Ray was blind, but he wasn't blind from birth. He became blind around the age of nine. And in the movie, as he's going blind, his mother knows that he will become fully blind, and she wants to ensure that Ray will have the strength and the wisdom and the ability to make it on his own. So she helps him, and she teaches him how to feel things, how to make his way around the house and around the community. And in one scene, Ray comes in from the outside and trips as he enters into his home. And he's lying on the ground in desperation, and he's calling out, Mama, Mama, help me, Mama, Mama, I need you. Please help, Mama, Mama. And his mom is right in front of Ray. She's seen everything. She knows that he needs help. She's standing right there. She could have easily come to his aid, but she's silent. And her silence actually strengthens Ray. Her silence prepares Ray for the life ahead of him. And in the same way, the father's silence strengthens Jesus to face the greater silence that he's going to endure on the cross. In verse 39... Most English translations, and our English translation reads like this, that the son cried out, the son prayed a second time, saying the same thing. But it's far better translated, saying essentially the same thing. You see, the, the thrust of the Greek is that Jesus essentially said the same thing, but he didn't say the exact same thing. Luke tells us in his gospel that after his first prayer, an angel came, and an angel ministered to him and strengthened him. And Matthew actually records the second prayer. And in the second prayer, the son says this, Father, if, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And so in between the silence of questioning the Father in the first prayer, is there any other way? Do I have to drink this cup? The answer comes back, yes, you do. And he's ministered to. He's strengthened. So that in his second and third prayers, he doesn't ask the Father to remove the cup. Rather, he asks for grace and strength to drink the cup. Make me strong, he asked, to drink this to the bitter end. If rescuing your people means that I have to drink this cup, then give me strength to do it, Father. And friends, this was his agony. He wasn't agonizing over what the Romans would do to him, but what justice would do to him. 
It wasn't about the pain that he would endure from the cross, but the pain of fulfilling all righteousness. It wasn't about the beatings from the guards, but the weight of mercy. This is what he's in agony about. And in the garden, he's strengthened to face what he's going to endure on the cross. And as he comes back each time, being faithful, being the faithful Savior, being the faithful one, as he comes back to his disciples in between these prayers, what does he find his disciples doing? He finds them being faithless. He finds them sleeping. They can't even stay awake and befriend him in his hour of need. And don't think for a second that Jesus wasn't discouraged by his disciples' apathy. His disciples could either strengthen him and encourage him in what he's about to face, or he could discourage him all the more. He could make him feel all the more alone. The disciples promise so much in our text, but they deliver so little. Peter promises that even if everybody else would fall away, even if everybody else would leave him and be faithless, that he would not. He would be faithful to Jesus to the very end. Well, very little time has passed since Peter's confession, Peter's big promise, and Peter is already asleep. And in just a little bit later, Peter will deny him. Peter will be the one to deny him the most. In just a few minutes, all the disciples will be scattered. They all, like sheep, will go astray. They will all go to their own ways. They all will deny their shepherd. Verses 51 and 52, which we read, tell us that there was a young man in the garden. And most commentators think that this was Mark, who has his cloak pulled away from him. And he's left in the garden naked and ashamed. Just like Adam and Eve, the disciples are metaphorically and literally naked and ashamed as they run and hide in disgrace. And the gospel writers don't tell us this explicitly, but I think it's safe to assume that Jesus in wrestling in the garden, Jesus in his agony in the garden, is being blasted by the powers of evil. And you can imagine the powers of evil screaming at Jesus saying, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you going to die for them? Why are you going to endure justice and mercy and the weight of righteousness for these people? Look at them. They're already running. They're already faithless. Why would you ever do what you're going to do for such faithless people? But Jesus is faithful even in the midst of unfaithfulness. He's steadfast even in the midst of scattering. Friends, when people are unfaithful to you, what do you do? What do I do? We leave them. We drop them like lead. This is one of the marks of our culture. America is a land of faithlessness. When people don't do what we want them to do, we get them out of our lives. We stop being in relationship with them. It's hard to be faithful when others are so unfaithful. 
But Jesus understands in going to the garden that he's not there to die for faithful sinners. He's there to die for the faithless. Everyone has left Jesus, but Jesus isn't going to leave his people. He is faithful to his mission, and nothing can stop him, not even the faithlessness of his people. And friends, this is one of the most amazing things about the gospel. The gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus will never leave us. Jesus will never forsake us. He's faithful to love us despite our unfaithfulness. His love endures forever. He's bought us with a price. We are his. We are his sheep and he is our shepherd. And he tells us that even when we run far, far away from him, that he's ready to receive us when we return. And I think we have a hard time grasping the truth of this. I think all too often we tend to think that God is faithful to us only to the degree that we're faithful to him. We tend to think like this. Imagine that this hand represents us and this hand represents God. We have a view of Christianity that says that we must take hold of God. And if we grasp onto God and cling to God enough and strong enough and for long enough, that eventually God will take hold of us. But the gospel teaches us that God comes and God grabs hold of us. And even when we struggle to cling to him, and even when we lose our grip, and even when we turn and run away, that God has his grip on us that he still holds us, and that we are secure in him. So friends, if you're a Christian this morning, don't look at this passage and first and foremost think of all the shameful ways that you have run away from Jesus, just like these disciples did. You see, if you start there with your faithlessness, and if you're really honest with yourself, you'll be crushed because you are not faithful. You'll never be faithful enough. There will always be ways in your life where you run from God. There will always be places where you see yourself in your nakedness and you are full of shame. Instead, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christianity is that we look at Christ's faithfulness to love us, even in the midst of our faithlessness. We look to see how he went to the cross to die for unfaithful sinners like you and me. We look to his love and his humility and his passion and his patience for his people. Friends, he died for Peter and James and John, the people who couldn't stay awake with him in the hour of his need, the people who denied him. He died for Mark, the one who ran away from him naked and ashamed. He didn't die for the righteous, but he died for sinners. So if you want to be transformed from your unfaithfulness into faithfulness, this is how you do it. You look to Jesus. He will spur you on to be faithful. It's only because of his cross that you can live in faithfulness to him. 
It's only because of his grace that you can become faithful for him. Friends, you are not to become faithful like Jesus. But you're to become faithful for Jesus. Understanding the difference of this makes all the difference in the world and all the difference in our understanding of Christianity. You see, you'll never be faithful like Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is faithful. You will always have ways in which you deny him. You will always have ways in which you run away from him. You will always have ways in which you refuse to submit to him. You will never, ever be faithful like Jesus. But by grace, you can become faithful for Jesus. You can become faithful because you belong to him. You can become faithful as you realize that he's bought you with his own blood. You can become faithful when you realize how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how much he delights in you. When you are unfaithful, don't go to the garden. It'll squeeze you. It'll crush you. When you're unfaithful, go to the cross. It's at the cross where you'll receive mercy and grace and the spirit to become a little bit more faithful. And friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're here exploring the story of Christianity, wondering what Christianity is all about, then one of these, the implications of this passage is that in your running from God, in your rebelling against God, you really have one of two choices. Either you will cut, drink the cup of justice yourself, or somebody else will drink it for you. Now, before you start to think, well, you know, that's the problem that I have with Christianity is this whole issue of justice. I don't want to believe in a God who is angry. I don't want to believe in a God who's wrathful. I don't want to believe in a God who would send people to hell. Well, if that's the case, why do you get angry? And I know that you do. If that's the case, why do you punish others for the ways that they mistreat you? And I know that you do. Why do you cry out for justice? And I know that you do. Why do you complain that things are unfair? And I know that you do. Why do you get angry at something small like somebody cutting you off in traffic? Why do you get mad at something small like a waiter who's messed up your order? Why do you complain when a boss or a loved one or a friend is unjust toward you? It's because you are made in God's image. And you hate injustice, just like God hates injustice. You cannot overlook un injustice, just like God cannot overlook injustice. And so if you're going to take away the right for God to be angry at injustice, at least be consistent, and at least take away your own right to be angry at injustice. But that's something that you don't want to do, and that's something that you can't do. Because you're made in the image of a just God. And justice is written into your heart. So that leaves us with the choice. Either for Christ to endure God's perfect and infinite justice for us, or for us to endure it ourselves. And if we try to do that ourselves, God's justice will never, ever be satisfied. That's why the Bible teaches, as hard as it is, to hear as hard as it is to believe that hell is eternal. 
because a finite creature can never satisfy the perfect justice of an infinite God. Friends, don't dismiss this passage. Wrestle with this passage. Agonize over this passage. Sweat over this passage. Let it squeeze you. Because only the faithfulness of Jesus will produce faithfulness in you. Only the grace of Jesus will produce grace in you. Only the love of Jesus will produce love in you. Only the mercy of Jesus will produce mercy in you. So be squeezed by his great love for you and let it transform every area of your life. Jesus' decision to get on a colt Palm Sunday many, many years ago led him straight to the Garden of Gethsemane. Led him straight to his betrayal, to his arrest, and to his death. It led him straight to drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath. So that those who put their faith in him, those who know him, those who are his beloved children, can drink the sweet cup of God's love. And friends, by faith, we become participants in his story this story of his amazing love for the world. By faith, we receive his spirit so that we can, in small but real ways, begin to live in faithfulness to our faithful Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your life. And we thank you especially for justice. We thank you that Jesus died to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill your justice, so that we might enter into your life. We thank you that we have access to you through the Son. We thank you that the Holy of Holies is not shut out from us, but we have access into your grace and we stand by your grace. We thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus. We thank you for the faithfulness of your spirit. We thank you for your faithfulness to redeem your people, even though your people have constantly and continually rebelled against you. And we ask for grace. We ask for your spirit that we might this day and this week live in faithfulness to you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.